Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. You know, pain is a lonesome place. I don't have to tell you, do I? It'll drop a rock in your stomach right through your pounding heart. And when your knees are so weak, you hit the ground and you finally realize you don't got this. Well, now you might just make it. You see, the tallest tree may not weather the storm, but its roots do. So dig in, stand up, and let the wind blow. Because there's hope. So one of my um, earliest memories of really grappling with what we're going to talk about in the series was I was 17 years old, and it was like a typical Saturday, I thought, and I was uh, hearing a doorbell ring, and so I, I got up to answer the door, and I was home with my mom, and I recognized this dude that I kind of recognize, but I don't know him that well, and he's pulling a car into our lawn like it seemed like a few feet away from our door, which is like, that's not normal. And I open the door, and he is frantic, and his eyes are really big, and he begins to try to get out the fact that some kind of accident had happened, and my brother, who um, owned a pretty large maintenance company around the southeast, had been in some kind of work accident, but he was all over the place, and I couldn't really decipher, and he ran into my house, which I'm like, that okay, that's not normal, and trying to figure it out, and immediately it was obvious that something was really wrong. And I went over and I tried to dial the phone for my mom because she was just, you know, freaking out, as you can imagine, and try to tell my dad who's at work, like, something's happened, um, like, you need to come home and we need to go to the hospital. And I remember later that day into the evening and then late into the night, like, just really having this feeling, and this is the best way to describe this, why I think the series title is appropriate, it just felt dark. It was the first time in my life I'd ever felt that, where I felt like things kind of closing in and those inevitable, like, God, what the heck, man, and what's going on? And then I've, like, experienced that several times since then, as many of you, I think probably all of you have, like, you have a moment that you would just describe as it was dark, it was hard, it was painful. Uh, my wife and I, when we first got married, she's going to tell this story, by the way, in week three um, on Mother's Day, which is going to be a little unique, but it's can't miss for everybody. Um, but the first year we were married, things just started to go off the rails. And she was struggling in ways that none of us understood and suicidal. And I, we were trying to get answers and we had no idea what the answers were and not to over-dramatize it, but I remember being in the kitchen, our little townhouse that we had bought. And we both just said the same thing of like, it just, thing, it, we feel, it feels so dark and we feel so alone. And another time, not to give you my entire life history, but in 2014, my mom was struggling with stuff, and my mom and I were incredibly close, and 
she's having some cognitive issues and there's a lot of explanations for what it probably was and I'll never forget being at lunch with a friend and getting a call from Nicole and our worst fears were confirmed of like, hey, your mom's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And again, just like that same feeling of just, gosh, are you kidding me? And, and it just felt, there's a lot of seasons as she battled that disease where it just felt dark. And then, because what I do, um, you know, for a living, I've just experienced that over and over and over again by countless people, hundreds of people, I think it's safe to say. Even right now, walking through things with friends who attend our church or are part of our church, whether it's a cancer diagnosis or abuse, or it's a kid that walked away, or it's a financial disaster, and it's like, how do I recover from this? Or, you know, it's, it's some other really painful stuff. Some, something, somebody has done something to them. It's a lie. It's they left and took the kids. It's, you know, some really difficult stuff where, like, they don't really know the way forward. They don't know how it's going to turn out, and it just feels really, really dark. And here's the thing, there's three things that I've noticed when we walk through really dark times, really difficult times. There's kind of three things we do. The first thing is we often look to God. And what's really interesting about it is we do that even if we're not sure about God. We're like, why should just pray in case? Like if there is a God, this is the time to talk to him. We're kind of searching for meaning. The second thing we do is we almost always make assumptions about God. Like we immediately start to think of what, we think God should do, how we think God should respond. And then this is the craziest one because it's so off the rails. Um, how we would respond if we were God, which is dangerous. Like if I were God, there'd be no human beings left probably. Like I would not be great at that position. You know what I'm saying? Like, but we start to think, how would God respond? How would I respond if I were God? And then those assumptions most of the time inevitably lead us to our own conclusions about God based on what we can see, based on what we feel, and based on how we can kind of connect the dots in terms of what's going on in our life. And a lot of times we start drawing conclusions that maybe are really far from reality. That like you're looking at what you're walking through or what they're walking through and on kind of their behalf, you're like, I I just feel like God's absent. Like God has not answered my prayer in like a half a decade. Or it just feels like that maybe God is apathetic. Like if you get to those seasons where you're walking through something and you just need kind of God to throw you a bone and it just feels like God is not present, God's not near, you don't feel God. And then in other cases, man, extreme maybe, you feel like God's angry, that maybe this is kind of quid pro quo, that God's getting you back for something or or then maybe just God's unable, God can't do anything about the circumstance. There's a God who's out there somewhere, but he doesn't seem equipped to do anything about my circumstance. It doesn't feel like he sees my circumstance. Here's how I know that a lot of that's true, and we end up making assumptions and then draw conclusions. Um, my communications director came to me a few months ago, and she's like, you'll never guess what the top Google search is that leads people to our website. And, you know, you can measure all of this stuff, and we write blogs around it just to help people, resources to help people in their spiritual development. But the number one top Google search that led people to our site, and I'm talking about in the thousands, was people Googling this question right here. Why does God hate me? Like the number one question, which might seem really extreme to you, but there has probably been moments, even if we didn't say it out loud, where your circumstances kind of felt that way of like, God, what the heck? Are you angry? Or do you just not care? Are you absent? Or is it like this extreme thing where like, I feel like you hate me in this season. Like you're not doing anything on my behalf. And a lot of people feel that because people are searching all the time on Google. 
Why does, why does it feel like God hates me in this circumstance or in this season? And can I just be like super honest? The church has a part to play in that. Because for some of you, you grew up with somebody handing you a theology that just said, if you have enough faith and you believe, then God's gonna change it. And yet you had a ton of belief. You prayed more than you had ever prayed in your life and they didn't get better. And she didn't come home and God didn't heal them. And financially you were still broke. And it seemed like that God paid no attention to the injustice of that abuse or the lie or the racism that you experienced. And God didn't seem to see what was happening in your adult kid's life. And they left and took the kids anyway. And you had a ton of faith. You prayed a ton. And God didn't seem to do anything on your behalf. And here's the thing, like Jesus dealt with this all the time. One day Jesus was um, encountering this guy who had been blind from birth and religious leaders were all around and they immediately drew all of their own conclusions about what God would do. And here were the only conclusions that they could consider as a possibility. They were like, this dude's blind. Who sent Jesus, him or his parents? Because obviously this is the result, like this darkness he's walking through, like literally and figuratively, like he did something, God's trying to pay somebody back and Jesus just looks at them and he's like, are you kidding me? He didn't say that's my paraphrase, but he's like, what you think about God is completely off. Your theology is all wrong. And then, okay, then Jesus says this, and I, like, we don't talk about this verse a lot. This verse is simultaneously uncomfortable and comforting, depending on what kind of season you're in, when Jesus said this, blessed are those who don't stumble on account of me. Jesus is basically, this is an admission of guilt. Sometimes I'm super confusing. Sometimes you're gonna walk through stuff and you're gonna have no clue what I'm doing. And you're gonna be tempted to draw wrong conclusions about me as you look at your circumstances and what I've done or maybe the lack of, of my presence and what I haven't done. And you're just gonna be tempted to go, does God even care? Is God even present? Is God absent? Is God just apathetic? Heck, is God angry at me? Does God hate me? Because my circumstances really feel like it right now. And Jesus is like, I know that's coming. Just a heads up to you. Blessed is a person who doesn't stumble on account of me. Because I'll just tell you straight up, there's gonna be seasons that you walk through and everything you thought about Jesus is gonna be tested and you're gonna wonder where in the world he's at and I hope you don't walk away in that season. John's a guy that came along in the New Testament and he, you know, he wrote his gospel, he was super close to Jesus and he wrote his self-titled book called John and I love John because you read his book and like over and over again, John is just like, he's so proud of his relationship with Jesus and he should be. But to the point of like, there's several accounts where he doesn't even, he doesn't even write his name in. He's just like, I'm just gonna refer to myself as the disciple Jesus loved. That's all you guys need to know. It's me, I'm writing this book. Jesus loves me, no need for my name. And so over and over again, like he's close with Jesus. He's proud of that relationship. And yet, even after Jesus' death and resurrection that we talked about last week, John experienced unbelievable suffering. John, we don't think about this a lot. John watched, he lived to be an old man. He watched all of his friends die, basically. All of them suffer. All of them give up their lives. He, he watched the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which was, if you study it historically, catastrophic for Jewish people. I mean, he experienced devastation after devastation. Later on in his life, he actually gets exiled to an island called Patmos. I don't know if you know the historical significance of that. There was a reason that he was exiled because they were so afraid of John, they were just like, send him to an island. 
because the theologian Tertullian tells us that under the emperor Domitian, they were like stomping out Christianity. John was a huge threat. The guy wouldn't shut up. And so they're like, here's the only thing we can do with John and this will end it forever. We're gonna boil John in oil. One problem is John didn't die which maybe you think that's crazy. I go back to this all the time, but we also serve a savior that um, predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off. And so somehow John was harnessing some of that power. So like boil him in oil, that'll shut him up. That did not work. Send him to an island. We don't want him in our presence. Like that's crazy. Like you just couldn't kill John. And yet John ends up on an island lives out his golden years. All of his friends are dead. He's writing some of the gospels, writing Revelation. But when he was in Ephesus, he writes the gospel of John in no doubt with everything that John saw and experienced. This one particular narrative was a narrative that he thought about and came back to over and over and over again. It's a narrative in John chapter 11 where John begins to tell the story of a day that he would never forget and the day that he was there for when Martha, who was also close to Jesus, along with her sister Mary and her brother Lazarus, and they send word to Jesus that Jesus' best friend, because Jesus was God, but he's also human in flesh, fully God, fully human. Lazarus was his best friend on planet Earth, and they send a, whatever they sent, uh, their version of a telegram to Jesus, and it just said this, the one that you love is sick. Again, this is another relationship that is so deep, no name is needed, which you don't have many relationships like that. You're like, the one you love is sick. Who? Um, like, and th- so they send this and immediately Jesus is like, well, that, that's Lazarus. And they assume so much in this message. They assume there's no need for a name. They assume the level of relationship and intimacy and they assume they know exactly what God's gonna do. Hey, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Do your thing. And so Jesus gets the message and in verse four of John chapter 11, Jesus heard this and he said, this sickness is not gonna end in death. And then this is just real uncomfortable, but I wanna land on it for just a second. Nah, it is for God's glory, so that purpose statement, God's son might be glorified through it. And I just always try to be honest with the scripture. I hate those two words. Like, I'd rather you be glorified taking me out of it. I'd rather you be glorified by moving all those trend lines up and to the right. I'd rather you be glorified by some miraculous healing. I don't want you to be glorified through anything. And here's the thing that's really interesting. I just wanna land on this for a second for all the skeptics and cynics that are trying to figure out faith, investigating faith. And we have so many on unfiltered radio that listen all over the state that are physically in here this morning. But this is the interesting thing because a lot of times we make an argument against God based on needless pain and suffering, right? Which I get that. Now, by the way, it's another message. Suffering is not an argument for or against anything intellectually, but that's another message. But we make this thing of needless pain and suffering. And I just, I, and I'm not like, you may not be there. This is just something to consider. You should investigate as far as you need to. But when you say needless pain and suffering, that is a lot of blind faith in your own cognitive reasoning. Because what it's saying is, because I think a circumstance is pointless and I can't see purpose in it, there must not be any purpose in the universe. 
Even though, and this is, this is kind of quoting Tim Keller, even though you can look back on some of the own significant events in your life that you thought were hell in the moment and then you get to the other side to go, there was actually something purposeful and good that was worked out of that. So it's really interesting. You should just ask this question. And if you're in the middle of suffering, don't ask it. In the middle of suffering is not the time to like look at apologetics or an, an, you know, answer you know, intellectual questions. It's just a time to like feel what you feel. But when you get to a place where you can, you should ask this question. If it's possible that in, like finite human beings can see purpose in some suffering, like finite, like you and your 2.9 GPA who binges Netflix and eats Cheetos, like you're just a human being, right? like finite human being without all the wisdom of the world, if you can see purpose in some suffering, is it possible if there is a God that maybe that infinite God can see purpose in all suffering? I, I don't know, but it's something to consider. And, and in this moment, it's like, this event is actually happening so that Jesus could stage an opportunity so that the world would know. Everybody who's doubted in the midst of a difficult circumstance, is God absent? Is God apathetic? Is God angry? Like, like this, this is the event and the circumstance that would echo throughout history so that you could know. And in verse five, now Jesus, I love that John says this, loved Martha. The reason he makes a point of this is because in just a second, you're gonna doubt it. Because you're like, well, if you loved, if you're good, I don't think it goes down like this. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick. So Jesus heard, Jesus knew, Jesus got the message. Jesus is not uninformed. And this is even more uncomfortable. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, real quick, this is the greatest danger if you know the scriptures, because you always want to skip to the end of the story without feeling the emotion of the middle that actually relates to maybe where you're at right now. Like all of his disciples are sitting there, they get word and the disciples are like, let's go. And Jesus is like, sit back down. We're not going anywhere. Well, you just, we're not going anywhere. And then for two more days, they're sitting there and all the disciples are looking at each other like, you think we're gonna leave now? Like when, when do you think this is gonna happen? Like his best friend is sick and Jesus doesn't seem to be alarmed. In fact, Jesus has intentionally delayed any movement, any activity in terms of moving in their direction. And so then Jesus finally tells the guys, okay, after two days, we're gonna go to Judea. And they're like, now? And here's the other thing, just side note. You're gonna read this for yourself. They're gonna go down, like down to Judea where Jesus, the last time he was there, um, they tried to stone him to death. And so basically to paraphrase his disciples' reaction, they're like, okay, Jesus, just quick concern. The last time you went down there, they tried to stone you. And we're kind of concerned for, uh, we're kind of concerned for you. So I think you should reconsider whether we go back down there again. And look, we've seen you do a lot of crazy miracles. Could you heal this guy remotely maybe? Like, could you make Jesus better from a distance? But if we go down there, I'm not sure it's gonna end well. And then Jesus just plainly tells them, hey, listen, Lazarus is dead and now we're gonna go. And all of the disciples are thinking, why in the world are we gonna go now? And why in the world have we been sitting here for days while your friend lost his life, took his last breath and all of his friends, Mary and Martha, people that you loved, that you've done life with, who supported your ministry, 
have suffered this entire time. And so then John adds this detail, and I'm like, John, verse 15, why, like, why write this? So John writes that Jesus said in this moment, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. And if it was you there or me there and we weren't afraid and were willing to be our normal sarcastic self, it would have been like, well, you know who's not glad? Lazarus. Like, you know who's not happy about this? Lazarus. If you could go ask him, can't, because he's dead and you waited several days. Like, if you could go ask Lazarus, if he's glad, he's not glad. Mary, Martha, not glad. None of those people are glad. And you're glad that you were not there. And then Jesus says this powerful statement. It again is uncomfortable, but at some level is insightful and helpful. He says, so that, purpose statement. So that you, guys, so that you might believe. Basically, you would never choose this, and I get it, and this is confusing. And I think if the disciples were not right there face to face with Jesus, they all would have questioned, and we know that because later they did. But Jesus is like, I'm doing something beyond what you can understand, and I want eventually you guys to get to the place because you're gonna need it. That when you walk through circumstances where everything hits the fan and it's really dark and things seem silent and God hasn't answered your prayers, I want you to be able to maintain belief and trust in me that leads to hope even when you can't feel me. And even when you can't see me. And even when you can't understand me, I want you to somehow believe in me when nothing else makes sense and when I'm not there. Because that time is coming and you guys have to be ready for it. And so Jesus said, but let us go to him. And then I love, we talked about Thomas last week. I love Thomas, one of my favorite people. Most unfortunate nickname in history is like Doubting Thomas. And Thomas, because you always have one of these guys in the group. You can, again, you can read this for yourself. Jesus is finally like, okay, but we're gonna go now. And Thomas, this is a quote. Thomas is like, all right, let's go die with him. Because we, we know how this is gonna end. Stupid, we'll just go die with him. And so Jesus takes his guys and Thomas, who's not happy about it. And they show up after Lazarus has been dead for four days. Again, don't skip the end of the story, please. And Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem. And can you imagine how many people in these couple days are showing up to Mary and Martha? Because they know the relationship. They've all hung out in their homes together. Again, Mary and Martha have been so a part of Jesus' ministry. They know the connection between Jesus and Lazarus. I mean, these guys are best friends. Can you imagine as people are coming over to you know, bring casseroles and meals and set up meal trains and like care for them and pray for them? Can you imagine how many people approach Mary and Martha to go, hey, just a quick question. Where's Jesus? You guys know Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah, we know. You, you guys spend a lot of time with Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah, we know. Yeah, like Lazarus and Jesus, they're like best friends. Yeah, yeah, they know each other. Where, where's you? And finally, I got to think Mary and Martha, like, we don't know. Yeah, yeah, we know him. Lazarus is best friends with him. We hang out all the time. We already sent word. Jesus hasn't shown up, hasn't even sent a card, has not bothered to move in our direction. So I can't answer your questions. I don't know where Jesus is. Verse 21, Martha finally meets Jesus. He finally gets there and Mary's back at home. And this is the tension that we all feel. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, 
My brother wouldn't have died. Jesus, why? And then I think this tension is worse and we feel this. But I know, like I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Martha feels the tension. I get why like this causes us to question God. Because like either, either you can and you won't and you haven't and we're, we're tight, we're close, you love me, you're good. Or you can't because you won't. Or you, the, the other side of it is you won't because you just don't have the ability. You, you literally can't do it. But Martha in this moment is making the declaration, Jesus, I believe. I've watched you heal random people where a blind man approaches you. None of us know his name and you heal him on the spot. A woman touches your robe in a crowd and you actually turn around to go, who is that woman? And by touching your robe in an instant, she's healed. I've heard the stories of you commanding nature and, com- and nature obeys you. You have healed random person after random person after random person, meaning I know that you can do it. Jesus, why in the world would it take you four days to show up when I know that you could do something about this? You're the one person who could do something about this. And you've done it for everybody else seemingly. And you haven't done it for us. Like, I just want to enter into that emotion. In any other human relationship, if you were to apply that standard, you would question the relationship. And that's why Jesus says, hey, blessed is a person who does not stumble on account of me. I get it. And then Jesus said to her, what you should not typically say to people in suffering, unless you're really in tune to the Holy Spirit, because we want to show up and slap a verse on suffering, so a lot of times we feel better about ourselves rather than just entering into their suffering and empathizing with them and feeling what they feel without trying to fix it. That's just a side note. So Jesus said to her, your brother's gonna rise again. And Martha's thinking it's kind of trite theology. So this is, I think, how Martha said this. Martha answered, yeah, yeah, I know he's gonna rise again in the resurrection of the last day. I get that, Jesus. And then Jesus said to her, no, 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 you're, you're not understanding. I am. Yo, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one, again, don't miss a statement. Just as Jesus said to his disciples, he says to Mary and Martha, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And Jesus is not talking just about salvation in this moment. Like this is, this is a big, Jesus is saying to Martha, listen, what you believe about me right now is gonna determine everything. What you believe about me right now, when you don't see me, when you don't understand me, when I am unbelievably confusing and you've been praying and I haven't shown up, what you believe about me right now is going to determine how you see and respond to me in this moment, how you see and respond to this pain that you don't understand, how you see and respond to me and whether you're able to maintain hope or not in the midst of unbelievable darkness. I want you to believe me. And then Mary like finally hears that Jesus is there. She runs out of the house. Martha's already met with Jesus and she gets there and she says the exact same thing that Martha had said and what we say. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, verse 32, and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, I just don't understand. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
why are you just now showing up? And then, and I'm gonna get ready to end it with this. This is the verse that we always skip on by because we love the next verse. We love to slap it on a coffee mug or you know, put it somewhere where it, just, it shows and exemplifies Jesus' empathy and, God, and Jesus moving into our sorrow. Those, that two, those two powerful words that Jesus wept and they are powerful words and they give us so much into the nature and the character and the emotion of God. I think that verse doesn't mean nearly as much until you understand the verse right before it. Because Jesus right here makes a declaration to all of us in those painful moments where we wonder, God, do you, do you really get this? Do you feel this? Do you understand what I'm going through? Here, here's what I mean. Every once in a while, my wife will come to me and she's telling me about a situation and I try to be the reasonable one. Like, well, yeah, I bet that's not a big deal. Or I bet they didn't mean that. And then every once in a while, like she doesn't need me to be reasonable. She just needs me to be angry with her. It's like, stop being reasonable. I just want you to be angry with me. Like, I need you to be on my side. Anybody? Like, you just have that friend or your girlfriend or what? Like, just stop. Be angry. Like, let's hate together. Like, eventually, Jesus is gonna change our heart. But like, right now, I just need to be angry. And by the way, like, Jesus writes about all this. Sometimes there is a, an appropriate anger and indignation that is, that is thoughtful and is appropriate based on what you've experienced. Like, not all anger is bad anger. And Jesus is about to show us this. And this is, this is the equivalent of my wife going, stop being reasonable, just feel this with me. We need to be angry together, and I need to know you're on my side. And Jesus enters into this moment and he feels what we feel in those moments where we watch something happen and go, it should not be this way. And we watch somebody suffer and think, this is not how the world should work. And we experience somebody walk out on us when we've done everything that we can and think, I did not deserve this. And I don't think I can handle this. And I don't know why God would allow this. And Jesus enters into all of it and it says he saw them weeping, he saw the Jews weeping and these are such important words that we don't get in the English translation. And he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. And literally in the Greek, troubled, which is not translated well in English, means anger, outrage, and emotional indignation. Meaning, before Jesus wept, Jesus got angry. And Jesus was not angry at Lazarus. And Jesus was not angry because there was something in his past that led to this moment or the fact that he just didn't have enough faith. And Lazarus, if you just would have prayed more, Mary and Martha, if you would have been more faithful. No, no, no. This is the moment where Jesus enters in and he is angered and he is outraged and there is emotional indignation about the circumstance and the fact that his friend died. And in this moment, Jesus is saying with all of us, it is not supposed to be that way. This is not what I created. Every bit of injustice where you go, that's wrong, that's not right, that's not how the world should work. Jesus is going, I agree with you. Every bit of evil, every bit of injustice, every bit of abuse, the fact that you had to walk through that, the fact that anybody would lose a kid, the fact that you'd have to endure that diagnosis after you have been so faithful, the fact that you'd have to walk through their lie or their abuse or that injustice or that evil would ever reign. Jesus in this moment stops long enough to get angry with us to go, this is not how I created the world to work. This is not how it's supposed to be. 
And I'll just be straight with you, he doesn't get a lot of airtime. I need angry, outraged Jesus every once in a while. I love that you wept. I want you to be angry with me about this circumstance. I want you to feel what I feel in the depths of my soul. It shouldn't go down like this. And Jesus feels all of it to go, this was not my plan. And in the Garden of Eden, I made everything for universal flourishing and universal wholeness. And then sin entered the world and sin broke it all. And in fact, Paul would write about it, that sin entered through one man and through sin, death came to all of humanity. And it's not the result of your sin, but it's the result of sin. Sin broke everything. And Jesus in Genesis 3.15 starts to veil his promise that one day he was gonna do something about it. But in the meantime, in the middle, Jesus is going, I feel the anger with you. I feel the outrage with you. I feel all of the effects of sin that leads to death with you. And this is not what I want for humanity. You were actually made and created for the Garden of Eden. And when your soul inside of you, it's what C.S. Lewis would talk about over and over again, that this thing in us, that the world cannot not satisfy. Solomon would write about it in Ecclesiastes, that God has set eternity in our hearts. So every time you look at suffering and evil and injustice and go, it shouldn't be this way, this isn't right, this shouldn't happen, the God of the universe says it shouldn't. You have eternity in your hearts, which means your soul longs for the Garden of Eden and one day I'm gonna return everything to universal flourishing and universal wholeness and the resurrection and the life is gonna stamp out evil and injustice and he's gonna undo every wrong and he's gonna heal every hurt and he's gonna wipe away every tear. But in the middle, I just wanna tell you, I'm outraged and I'm angered and one day I'm gonna put an end to it. And then Jesus enters into that pain after feeling that righteous anger and outrage. And it says in verse 35 that Jesus wept and he just felt it. And unlike any other religion, he would prove in a short amount of time, because this was actually the hinge event that led Jesus ultimately to be crucified. Jesus would feel all of it so he could say to the world, I'm not a removed ivory tower God. I'm not some kind of king that sits on my throne and I can't relate with the individuals that I've been called to lead. I am a suffering savior and I know. And then this is when we wanna jump to the end of the story and I just decided I wasn't gonna do it. Because we know how it ends, right? And that'd be a great time to go and then here's what Jesus did and he prayed a prayer and it was amazing. Let's sing a big song. But the reality is like Jesus knew what was gonna happen was Lazarus and yet he felt all these things in the moment anyway, and I'm convinced because this moment wasn't just for Lazarus. This moment was for everybody who's still in the middle and they know that there's the promise of the resurrection and life, but we may not see that this side of eternity. Amen. So my question is, this is how I wanted to start the series. And I'll just tell you, there's no bow on this. It doesn't wrap at the end of the show nicely. It's not a Hallmark movie. Like what do you do and how do you find hope when it doesn't work out? when it doesn't change and you're not sure it will. And I know you want me to talk about that because that's just your life. That's just real. Like we agonized and I've, I've experienced these things so many times. We agonized and we prayed 
for my brother and for God's protection and God's healing. And then later that night, it, it was evident it wasn't gonna come. And God wasn't gonna answer that prayer. And my 27-year-old brother with two kids entered into eternity with Jesus. And we pleaded with God that first year of marriage that God would heal my wife of that mental illness that she's gonna talk about in week three and that God would take it all away. And God has done miraculous things and led her to wholeness and has led her to, to health. But after a decade, God hasn't healed. And, and we pleaded with my mom's diagnosis knowing, God, you can, God, you will. If you decide to do it, and we're asking for a miracle, we're asking that you would do something supernatural and God heard all of those prayers and God didn't answer any of them. And she lost that battle. What do you do when it doesn't work out? What do you do when it may not get better? And I'm convinced that it comes down to almost a singular question that will guide you and is really the answer to Jesus' question in the midst of that suffering. I want you to believe in me. And the question is this, just this, when you start to walk through darkness or you're in the midst of it right now, how do you believe that God responds to you? The, I'm telling you, the question of whether you hang on to hope or not is this question. How, I mean, really believe. How do you believe that God responds to you? Here's one thing I know about darkness is that darkness gives the enemy an opportunity. And I don't, I don't wanna get too crazy, too ethereal, and some of you are brand new to church. There is an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and his number one goal is just to freaking lie to you all the time and to steal your hope. And here's the thing about darkness. Darkness, I mean, any study will tell you this. Darkness, suffering, it makes you in this place where you are vulnerable physically. You are vulnerable emotionally. You are vulnerable spiritually. It's why in suffering or when we're hurting, we reach for some of the dumbest things and do some of the dumbest things because we're vulnerable in that moment and the enemy knows that. And it's also an opportunity for God to do something significant, but you cannot ignore. You have an enemy who wants to lie and darkness is an opportunity and he's gonna play on darkness in two ways. He's gonna use the darkness to amplify insecurity and distort reality. It's gonna amplify insecurity, he's gonna distort reality. Because here's the thing that is true of every human heart that started in the Garden of Eden is there is a thread of insecurity in us where we wonder a lot if it's not checked. Am I okay? Am I enough? Am I loved? Is God okay with me? And I'm telling you, when those feelings start and they're so natural in the midst of suffering and darkness, the enemy will come running to go, no, you're not. You're not okay. You're not loved. God is against you. God isn't for you. And then can I just be really brutally honest? We're not okay. That's why the enemy's so effective. We're not. I know I'm not. I know I haven't measured up to my own standards. I know that I've let people down. I know that I've not lived a perfect life. Like we're not okay. And this is where you have to lean into what Jesus says when he says, believe in me, I'm the resurrection and the life. Because Jesus, not long after this Lazarus incident, he would prove that he is resurrection and life. And as we said last week, he would validate everything that he said about his life and his death. And he went to a cross and he suffered the most horrific death imaginable. And on that cross, at the end of it, he said, it is finished. I took your sin past, present, 
future. I took all of the punishment, all of the wrath, all of the condemnation, all of the retribution, so that when you place your faith and trust in me, you would never have to take it again. And so even in the midst of your dysfunction, even in the midst of your insecurity, even in the midst of, I don't know if I'm okay. I don't know if I'm enough. I don't know if I'm loved. I don't know if God's okay with me. You know what? You're not okay, but through faith and trust in Christ, he makes you okay. He takes all of your punishment for all of your sin so that you can walk through any circumstance and know I am loved, I am accepted, I am worthy, I am insecure. And even in the midst of insecurity, God has done something on my behalf. It's why Paul was able to come along. And come on, Paul, huge past, reason to question. He writes to Christians in Rome who are suffering under Nero, who probably started to ask the question, God, you good? Are we okay? You sure you don't hate us? Because it kind of feels like that being a Christian in Rome in the first century. And Paul writes this, and I love it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know what God's doing in your circumstance. I don't know what God's working out. I don't know why God hasn't answered. I don't know why you haven't felt his presence. I don't know why you feel alone. But we know what it's not. That suffering is not condemnation. That loss is not condemnation. Even the effects of the dysfunction that you created is not the result of the condemnation that was taken at the cross. The fact that they walked out is not condemnation. That it hasn't gotten better financially is not condemnation. That the diagnosis returned is not condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is on your side because he came to your side to suffer on your behalf so that you would never have to wonder again. And Paul said, just a couple more, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry? All the things that we associate with God's absence, maybe God's anger, the fact that God doesn't love us anymore. Paul's like, no, 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 you can be destitute, in danger, threatened with death. Is there any condemnation in that? He just answers with a resounding verse 37, no. Reality is when you place your faith and trust in Christ, in the midst of any circumstance, you're Mary and Martha getting all the question, where's Jesus? I don't know where Jesus is. But I know because of what he's done for me in history, it echoes throughout all the generations. I am loved, I'm accepted, I am worthy, I am secure, I'm a son and daughter of God and my circumstance are not evidence of God's activity in my life. Blessed is a person that doesn't stumble on account of me. But the enemy is going to try to amplify that insecurity. And the second thing the enemy is gonna do is try to distort reality for you. And I just wanna say one more thing around this idea of distorting reality because for some of you, this is right where you're at. Somebody sold you a lie theologically that if you just have enough faith and belief, God's gonna change it all. Hey, guess what? John the Baptist had more faith than probably you do. John the Baptist, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he had more faith than I do. John's in prison and he thought the same things that we do. Hey, disciples, could you send this message to Jesus? I, I know we're cousins. I know he referred to me as the greatest man born of woman, which that's high praise. And I, be, I believed up to this point, he's the Messiah, but why in the world, if we're that close, am I in prison? Could you go ask Jesus, are, is he, are you sure he's the one? Or maybe there's another one coming and he's gonna let me out of prison because he loves me and because he's good. And they send word to Jesus. Hey, John's wondering if you're the guy. And Jesus says, well, tell John this. The blind receive sight. The dead are raised. 
the lame walk. And John's going to stay in prison. And tell him I love him. XOXO. And then there's Paul, charged of leading the whole movement. And he is suffering in some pretty incredible ways. And I'm not going to speculate on what that suffering was. But he comes to, to God. He prays to Jesus. Jesus, you got to take this away from me. No. No, 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 let me just ask you one more time. Like, for me to do what you're asking me to do, you've got to heal me of this. I hear you, Paul. Uh-uh. All right, just one more time. Jesus, I'm thankful for what you've done. I'm thankful for you've put me in charge of this. I need you to take this away. I cannot endure this. And Jesus says to Paul, who's got a lot of faith, I love you. No. And my grace is gonna be sufficient for you. And my power is gonna be flexed in your weakness. I want you to believe me. Jesus never teaches about the amount of faith. He teaches about the object of your faith. I want you to believe in me and you can have all of the faith in the world, love Jesus with all your heart, have the most intimate relationship you can imagine and still walk through darkness because Jesus made this promise in this world you are going to have trouble and listen your savior wasn't even immune from it his father sent him to die Jesus prays in the garden somehow provide another way the father's response to Jesus the savior of the world no and then Jesus dies the most excruciating death imaginable and he takes crucifixion and works salvation to say you will work through darkness but as the writer of Hebrews says you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses do not give up do not give in don't allow the enemy to amplify your insecurity and don't allow the enemy to distort reality. So in the midst of whatever you're walking through or maybe you're about to walk through it or you just walked out of it, how do you believe that God responds to you? That if you placed your faith and trust in Christ, he's taken your sin and condemnation. He's made you a son and a daughter that you have all of his favor on you, that you are loved, you are accepted, and you are worthy and you are secure. And so as we end, I just wanna give you the opportunity to kind of sit under that, to declare that, that as you walk out of here, it, nothing has changed. The circumstance hasn't gotten better. Again, you don't know if it ever will, but what I know is at the epicenter of whether I maintain hope or not is how do I believe God responds to me? Because this is true of every human relationship. How you believe somebody else feels about you is gonna determine your response to them. So how do you believe God responds to you? So all over the house, would you just bow your head, close your eyes with me? And I wanna give two invitations. And the first one is this, is the scripture teaches the good news is like injustice requires a payment. Injustice requires some sort of retribution to make things right. And in our heart and soul, all of us know that and feel that. We don't always feel it for us, but we feel it somewhere in the world where we see injustice to say something has to be done. And your savior knew that and it's why he came. And so the good news is you don't have to take the punishment for that, the condemnation for that. Jesus already did it. But that happens when you personally decide, I am going to believe in you, the resurrection and life. I'm not gonna believe in my ability to earn my way to you, but what you have done for me. And so wherever you are, online, in the house, I wanna give you an opportunity just to respond to this message 
to say, I personally believe in Jesus, that he walked the earth perfectly and lived the life nobody could live, died on the cross from my sin, past, present, and future, rose from the dead, and now I'm trusting him to save me and forgive me. So wherever you are, I wanna lead you in this prayer. The prayer doesn't save you, it's your declaration of faith and trust, but if that's you in this moment, I wanna lead you. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you lived the perfect life I couldn't, that you died on the cross for all of my sin, and three days later, you rose again. And right now, I'm trusting in you, believing in you to save me, to forgive me, to become a son and a daughter of God, and God never disinherits his kids to be loved, accepted, worthy, secure, not because of my behavior, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And if this is the moment you made that transfer of trust with nobody looking around, would you just lift up your hand real quick to go, this is the moment I placed my faith and my trust in Jesus to save me, to release me, to free me of condemnation. Just lift it up for just one second. We're gonna put a, hand, a card in your hands. And then if you choose, we'd love for you to take that card to the info center and we'd give you some information about this new journey, but you can do what you choose to do. But one more time, lift your hand up to go, this is the moment I'm placing my faith and my trust in Jesus, yeah. Second thing is I just wanna lead some of you in this prayer where you are in maybe a dark moment right now. And the thing that you need to anchor in your heart is the truth about how God responds to you in this moment. And so if that's you, you have a relationship with Jesus, but God, I wanna hang on. I wanna anchor myself to the truth. With nobody looking around, would you just lift up your hand so I can pray over you in this moment and just anchor this truth in your heart about how God responds to you in the midst of hurt and pain? Yeah, yeah, just lift it up real high for just a second. Jesus, I just wanna pray over these individuals right now in the midst of whatever they're walking through that this would be the moment that they would anchor belief in you when they can't see you, when they can't feel you, when you haven't responded the way that they thought, that they would be able to declare and begin to believe not just in their head, but in their heart, that even in the midst of unexplained circumstances, you are good and that your love has not been retracted, that you are with them, you are for them, your spirit is in them, I pray that this is the moment that they would shut down the lies of the enemy to try to amplify the insecurity, to try to distort reality. And instead they would feel anchored in you like never before that even when I don't understand you, even when it doesn't seem you're answering any of my prayers, you are working, you do love me, you are for me. I can trust you and I'm going to hang on in this moment and find hope in you. And so God, I pray that you would move move in my heart and help me to resonate with what I know is true about you, that you would shut down the lies of the enemy. And that in the midst of unexplainable circumstances, my hope would be in Jesus. And I pray this in your incredible name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? 
you can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.